My name is Karen Romelli, and I'll be reading from Acts 5, 12 through 18. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns and around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is a party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we kick off this new season, we're not just celebrating what it is that God has done for us, but we're also considering today, like, um, what is it that we're all about as a church? We're here all together in one service as one church family. And, 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 you know, we have a mission as a church. The mission that we have as a church is to glorify God by being and making disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our mission. We, we believe that biblically we are called to, in our lives, make much of the God who created us, that people would look at us and they would see the character and nature of God, that that's why you and I were created, and that the only way that any of us can do that and be that is in and through Jesus Christ, which is why we say we exist to glorify God by being disciples of Jesus Christ and making disciples of Jesus Christ. You can't have a life that brings glory to God unless Jesus Christ transforms your life first. But once he does that, as we follow Jesus, he works in us. We're able to live out that new life. And if you believe that he gives you new life and he, and he creates for you the life that you were made to have, then you want to see other people in the world also live for the purpose for which they were created, which is why we are called to make disciples. God is glorified as we follow Jesus Christ and make disciples of Jesus. But here's the deal, church. That's not easy. That's not easy. In the world in which we live... We have a world that surrounds us that is not living for the glory of God, which isn't looking to follow Christ. In fact, in today's world and throughout all of history, it has often been a struggle. And I loved what Andrea said when she was being baptized. She said, I, I was just thinking about a small thing like baptism, getting in the water as an adult after your son has been baptized, humbling yourself and saying, it's just a command that God gives us you know, that I would walk in obedience to the Lord, to humble myself like that, like, that's not, that's not an easy thing. That's just a small example. But there are times in your life as a parent, in your, in your job, where to obey Christ, to, to show the character and nature of God where he has you, it, it can cost you things. And so today I want to consider a question with you, and that is, is it worth it? Is this what we're doing, the gathering, the, the growing, the giving, the going, being and making disciples, like, is this worth it? What... What do you believe about that? You know, when we looked to build the new campus, we, know that we knew that there was a cost to it. We knew there was $7.5 million. There's going to be time. There's going to be energy. There's going to be us giving as a church. Is it worth it to have this new campus? I mean, think about all the things in your life that before you do it, you ask the question, is it worth it? I know some of you have been on those cross-country road trips with your family for family vacation. You're halfway through it. Is it worth it, right? You're trying to make this, that, 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 that decision, you know? 
Uh, some of you in your workplaces, you know, in order to, to do the tasks that's required of you, the hours that you have to put in, you ask yourself the question, you know, is it, is it worth it? When your child is three and throwing a temper tantrum in Target, you know, you're like, put him up for adoption. Is it worth it? I don't know, you know? <laughs> we, we, we are facing these questions all the time. And so what moves us to actually stick with something? What moves us to actually see something to completion? If you are saying, you know, I need to, I need to lose some weight, but I got to give up the food and I got to do the exercise. Every time you don't eat the thing you want to eat and do the exercise, it takes energy. Like you're asking yourself the question, what? Is this, is this worth it? Church, I can't tell you that there's no bigger question that we have to ask ourselves every single day than the question of, is it worth it to follow Jesus? And what I want to do this morning is I want you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. That was the passage that we heard read. Acts chapter 5. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. So you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you come to the book of, of Acts. You know, the John and John were up here and they announced how in the last two weeks, we had over 180 volunteers come to our volunteer meeting and, and the kicking that off. And I think to myself, you know, 180 people plus in our church volunteering and giving of their time to, to, to the ministry of this church family. is like, is that worth it? How, how do we think about this? Well, when we come to Acts chapter 5, we get to look at a story of the first followers of Jesus and how they answered that question in church. Here's my belief this morning. When we look to these first apostles, when we look to these first followers of Jesus, how they responded to the question, is it worth it? I think if we believe and understand the same thing, it has a change for us. So let me, let me catch you up really fast here where we're at in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts starts and Jesus Christ has sent his disciples out into the world. And he says, I want you to go and proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's basically saying in like modern context, I want you to preach the gospel in Valley Center, go to Escondido, San Diego, and then to the ends of, of the earth. And what we find in the book of Acts is they're doing exactly that. They're doing it faithfully. They're, they're preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And in fact, while they're preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, they're also healing people. God is validating their ministry. But what they find is the religious leaders of the day, they don't like this. And so early in the book of Acts, they rebuke Peter and John and they say, we don't want you to preach about Jesus. You're turning people away from, from our faith. And they're like, um, okay, great, but we're still going to do it. And then later on in the book of Acts, in fact, in the chapter that we find, they're back in the temple and they're proclaiming Jesus in the temple. I want to show you a picture. This is just like, a, this is a rendering of what the temple would have looked like in Jesus' day. Because when you hear temple in the Bible, I don't want you to think like a church gathering like this. You know, you had, you had the, the temple, but then you had the courtyard that surrounds it. And you see those steps over there on your left, down over there. Like when it says that the apostles went to the temple proclaiming the name of Jesus, they were doing it in the courtyard. They were doing it out on the steps. They were doing it where everybody was gathered together. And so there were crowds there and these, these crowds would listen to them as they taught. And while they're there in the temple preaching, um, they send some guards from the religious leaders to get them to stop doing it. And they grab Peter and they grab the apostles and they throw them in jail. And while they're in jail that night, the book of Acts tells us in Acts 5, it says God sends one of his angels and he sets them free from the jail. And the angel says, I want you now to go back to the temple where you were previously, the place where you got arrested, and keep preaching the name of Jesus. Now, how would you have felt in that moment? <laughs> you want me to go back to the place where I was doing the thing that I was told not to do and where I got arrested? Okay. And guess what? It was okay. They went back the very next morning. Now, the religious leaders 
And the people at the prison, they didn't know that any of this had happened. So the captain goes in the morning, Acts 5 tells us, and he goes to bring Peter and the apostles before the religious leaders, before the Sadducees, to bring them before kind of a, a trial. And they're like, they're not there. And they're like, well, where are they? And they're like, well, we discovered them back at the temple again. And they're like, well, go get them. And so it says here in the text that they, they go to go get them, but because they're afraid of the crowd, they won't take them by force. They won't take them by force, the text says. And, and so, because they were afraid to be stoned, but nonetheless, they bring the apostles. The apostles decide to go with this captain back before the Sadducees, the people that had put them in prison. And when they brought them before him, Acts 5.27, here's what Acts 5.27 says. They're now back before the religious leaders, and it says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Anybody know what name that is? It's Jesus' name, right? We strictly charge you not to do this, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? And so what are they doing? They got the apostles before them, and they're telling them, listen, we told you not to do this. You did it. And we're coming to you again and saying, do not do this. Now, church family, here's what you have to understand about the sensitivity of this moment. In the Jewish custom, if somebody was teaching something false, you could rebuke them once. The religious leaders could rebuke them once and just give them a warning. If you were found doing the same thing a second time, they could rebuke you and then beat you. If you were caught a third time doing the same thing, that's left you open to capital punishment. You could be killed for whatever blasphemy you were doing. According to how the text unveils itself here in Acts, this is the third time that they've been brought before these individuals. So when they say, listen, we told you to stop doing this, all the apostles, they all know one simple thing. This is our third and final warning. They know that if they don't stop proclaiming the name of Jesus, this isn't them getting a slap on the wrist. They have the ability to lose their lives if they reject what the religious leaders are asking them. Are you tracking with me? So this is a serious moment. Like if there was an ever a moment where the disciples were faced with the question, is this worth it? Is this proclaiming Jesus and following him really what I want to be about? Because if I'm gonna do it, I have the potential right now to lose my life. I mean, at minimum, they were already gonna be cut out of the community of Israel because they had been forsaking what the religious leaders wanted them to do. So at minimum, they, they were already gonna be rebuked and they were already gonna be cast out of the community, but now they had the potential to lose their lives. And so they're faced with the question like, is this worth it? And church, here's where the heart of the matter is. Look with me at how they come and respond. Put yourself in their shoes. If they claim fidelity with Jesus, their lives are forfeit. And Peter says, and the apostles, verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. All the apostles, Peter shouldn't be the only one that gets the credit. With one voice, they said, we must obey God rather than you. There's no hesitation. There's no, hey, can we just take a day or so to, to discuss how we want to respond? 
they in the moment immediately say, we're going to keep on proclaiming and worshiping and following Jesus. We hear you. We know what you're asking of us. But you, who are supposed to be the religious mouthpiece for God, Peter and the apostles say, you're wrong. You're not doing what God wants you to. We're following Jesus. Listen, church, I already told you, the cost for their words coming out of their lips was at minimum exile from community, when in reality, though, that what was most likely going to happen was they were going to forfeit their lives. And you want to talk about the cost. Like, was it worth it for them? They knew in answering that question, said, yeah, we would even lose our lives for Jesus. We're not going to stop following him. And you have to ask the, yourself the question, Why? Why? Why would they keep on following Jesus? Well, we don't have to guess at it. They give us the answer right here. Look at it, verse 29, and then following. They come to them, and they say, we must obey God rather than men. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. If I were to summarize what is happening here, what they're communicating to us is they're saying, listen, we know who Jesus really is and we know what he came to do. And because of those things, because we know who he is and what he came to do, we're all in on Jesus. We're gonna keep following him. Now they're abundantly clear on who they understand to be and what they understood him to do. My question is, who they understood him to be and what he accomplished meant so much to these men that they were willing to die and put their entire lives into following him. My question is, do you know him like they knew him? Do you know him like they knew him? Because if you don't know him like they knew him, if you don't understand what he accomplished, I don't know if any of us in this room can say, no, it's really, really worth it. But what I want to propose to you right now is if you understand these two things about Jesus, you really believe these two things about Jesus, it makes the cost of following him, no matter what it might cost you, absolutely worth it. But what I wanna tell you now as well is this. These things are so simple and basic, and if you've been around the church any period of time, you're gonna be so familiar with it that it could have potentially lost its significance in your life. And what I've been praying for and what I'm asking is that what we're about to see and how in one sense simple it is that God would reignite the significance of these things in our hearts and minds because it never got old for them and may it never get old for us. And so what were the things that they understood Jesus to be? Well, we see it right there in the text. It starts with this. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. God exalted him as his right hand as leader and savior. The very first thing that they understood about Jesus Christ was that he was God's appointed leader. That word for leader in the Greek is not a word that's used all that often, but when it is church, it is always used to refer to someone who is preeminent over all others. It's a word that is used to refer to someone who is a ruler. And what they're saying about Jesus is that they understand Jesus to be the ruler of the world. God's appointed ruler of the world. This is who Jesus Christ is is he's the ruler of the world. He's not supposed to be considered just a prophet or a teacher. They're like, look at the cost of following somebody who's just a prophet, the cost of following somebody who's just a good teacher. Look, 
nobody's teaching, nobody's prophecies are so great that this is worth dying for them. But for Jesus, he is the ruler of the world over everyone and everything. And he got there, the text says, because God exalted him to that position. He didn't come up with that position. Look, listen, Jesus as the Lord, Jesus as ruler of the world is not something that Jesus designated for himself or that the apostles designated for himself. You know, there's something fascinating happening only about 60 miles away from here. How many of you have ever heard of um, Slow Jamistan? Yeah, all right. Let me show you a picture of Slow Jamistan. This is 60 miles away from here. See this guy, Randy Williams. He's a disc jockey, and off of the 78, as you go east, he bought 11 acres of land here in California, and he designated those 11 acres as the country of Slow Jamistan. I'm not kidding. He has a uniform. He's created a passport for himself. He has laws and rules, and he considers himself the governor, the ruler, the dictator of Slow Jamistan. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Now, he's kind of doing this tongue-in-cheek, but people go to this location out in the California desert to find these 11 acres, and he declares this a sovereign nation with inside the United States. Would any single one of us, when rolling through the 78 and driving through those 11 acres, would any of us say, whoa, while I'm here, this guy's my leader, this guy's my king? Would any of us say that? No, it's ridiculous. There's no micronation inside of the United States. This, this, this isn't a legitimate ruler, but yet he's propped himself up. He's, he's got the decorations and everything. It doesn't matter what he says about himself. We, knew, we know who he is. He's a disc jockey. That's all he is. He's not the leader and ruler of a country church. When the apostles say that Jesus Christ is leader, he is saying, they are saying, he is the truly appointed leader of the world. He is the ruler over everyone and everything. Just as ridiculous as it would be for you and I when we're on those 11 acres to do what this guy says because we think he's the ruler of Sojamistan, for the apostles, it was just as ridiculous for them to have to obey these earthly leaders when they were in opposition to the Lord because they said, don't you know who he is? He's the ruler over everyone and over everything. Is it worth following Jesus? Um, yeah, because there's no part of the universe that he does not rule over. And any, anything that I do in disobedience to him is against the ruler over everyone and everything. And he is equal with God the Father because he comes from God the Father and God the Father has exalted him to his right hand. They are two in one. He's looking at the religious leaders who should have known better. And they said, listen, you think that Jesus was just somebody who lived and whom you crucified and died. We're here to tell you he was vastly more than that. And because he is, we have to follow him. He is our king. Do you, church family, and do I live each day truly looking at Christ for who he is? You know, one of the reasons why we're going to be preaching through the gospel of Luke, and I'm going to be straightforward, you thought it took us a while to get through Ephesians. <laughs> Here's my challenge for us as a church. We proclaim to follow Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you proclaim that he's your leader, that he's your ruler. My question to you is, how well do you actually know him? How well do we know what he said, what he taught, who people understood him to be? Is the Jesus we have in our mind a Jesus who is just a companion and friend who holds our hand as we go through life, or is he the ruler of the world? Is he the leader over everyone and everything? He can be your friend, but he has to still be exalted. Are you tracking with me? In fact, think about this. If he's the ruler and the king, 
The king who wins the battle at the end of the day is the one who gets, gives the spoils. Your King Jesus has won the battle and the victory. The kings of this world have fallen. They do not win. Why would we go after any king other than Jesus when we know that he is the genuine and true ruler? Does your life and my life reflect that we know what our king has called us to? Do we know that to follow anything else, to give our lives for anything else, is to go after a false king? And those kings and those rulers, they cannot reward. Only Jesus can. But that's not the only thing that they say. Like, that should be enough to make us say, yeah, no, he's the ruler over it. Why am I, why am I going to follow you all when you are under someone greater? But that's not all that they say. Look at what they go on and they say in verse 31. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and what? Savior. Now, here's the word that becomes so familiar to us in the church that I think it loses its potency on a day-to-day level. May it never be so. Give me a second here to unpack this. When they call him the Savior, they are saying Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And if you were paying attention, they say that he manifests himself as the Savior of the world in two ways. Do you see it there in the text? Let's continue on. Verse 31, it says, He's leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. This is the way in which Jesus saves. Through repentance and through forgiveness of sins. Do we understand what those two things are and how great they are to your life and to my life? And why? Because they understood him as the one who makes repentance possible and the forgiveness of sins possible, that they would give up everything for him. The first thing I want to talk to you about is this word repentance. Now, if you're taking notes, your brain's going to go crazy. There's two points there, and they're going to be flipped, okay? So bear with me, all right? You're going to be filling in the blanks and not be able to do it. They flip, okay? Take repentance for a minute. If you've been around the church, you know that repentance means a turning from something. Shuv, to turn. But it's turning from something and turning to something else. When it says that Jesus Christ comes as Savior to offer repentance, we sometimes have too, too narrow a view of repentance, and we just equate repentance with confession of sin. No, 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 no. It's so much more than that. When he talks about repentance, he's saying, I'm giving people the opportunity to turn from something and to turn to something else. What are we turning from and turning to? Well, if you're with us in Ephesians, it's abundantly clear. Every human being is dead in their trespasses and sins. Can I get an amen to that? For the wages of sin is what? Death. It's bondage to the kingdom of darkness. You are dead in your sins. When Jesus Christ rolls up on the scene as leader and as savior, he gives the ability for people to turn. To turn from what? Their death and their bondage in sin. We are prisoners, we are enslaved. And what God's word says is that when Jesus comes, he sets us free. We're able to turn from the bondage that we're under. We're released and we're free. But think of how messed up it would be to take a prisoner and to set them free, but to put them back in a place where all they have available to them is their old life. Their old friendships, the things that got them into prison in the first place. No, Jesus does something greater. He turns us by taking us from the domain of darkness and, as we've learned, delivering us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We turn from death and bondage to sin through Jesus Christ, and we are brought into newness of life. It's why in 2 Corinthians, we hear him say, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? 
new creation. Let's go on, though. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the what? The old has gone. That's the turning from and the what? The new has come. Repentance, a turning from and a turning to. You have new life in Jesus Christ. As I was watching the baptisms here this morning, I, I got to go here. I got to look at this just for a second. In Romans chapter 6, in Romans chapter 6, church, hear this, hear the word of the Lord. This is what Jesus Christ does for us. In Romans 6, it says, what shall we say then? He's talking to believers. He's talking to people who have been saved by Jesus Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still what? Live in it. Do you know that if you're in Jesus Christ, you have turned from your captivity to sin and have been set in the kingdom and the house of God? When he says that he came to bring repentance to Israel, he's talking about people turning from bondage and being brought into freedom and newness of life. I want to sit on something for just a second foundational to your understanding and my understanding of what Christ has done is found right here. Listen to me. Listen carefully because this isn't me and what I think the Bible says, it's what God's word says. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gonna go away in heaven. Is that what it says? No. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has gone. The new what? Has come. Tenses matter. Present tense, the old is gone, the new has come. And here's the deal. Too many Christians view the work of Christ as a work in which a sinner, now through Jesus Christ, has the ability to live as a saint. Most Christians think of themselves as a sinner who now has the ability to live as a saint. That is false. None of you in Jesus Christ are a sinner with the capacity to act like a saint. Because behold, the new has what? Come. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means we what? Died to sin. Instead, in Christ, you are a saint who has the capacity to sin. Are you tracking with me? This is a fundamentally profound thing because the majority of people I talk to still sing songs and still think about their Christian life as I'm a sinner and I'm a wretch. And sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I have the power of God to act like a saint. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you are a saint. You are righteous. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You have the power that raised Christ from the dead inside of you. And then it says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? What? By no means. You are a saint. Yes, you still battle against the flesh, but that's your identity. That's, you have turned from being a captive to someone who is dwelling in the house of God. Do you believe that? This is why these men were saying, listen, you want me to stop preaching Jesus? He has given me new life. Through Jesus Christ, new life is given. A whole new life, not a partial life. Too many times we view ourselves still in this little, this little mess in this bu bubble and we're saying, listen, 
I know that we still battle against sin. I know that the temptation still exists. But as long as you fail to see that Christ has set you free indeed and has indwelt you with the Holy Spirit, you're going to go around waking up in the morning thinking, oh, I'm a sinner. Today, though, through Jesus Christ, I can act like a saint. No, you are a saint who can act like a saint because Jesus Christ indwells you by his Spirit. This is what changes us on a day-to-day basis. It's all of him. And it doesn't just stop there. How is this all made possible? How can, this, how, can we even, how can I even think of myself as a saint? It's because of what he says next. He says that you and I, through Jesus Christ, have the forgiveness of what? Sins. Jesus comes to not just simply give us a new life, but through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sin. That's what comes to us. We have the forgiveness of sin. Our debt is paid. So positionally, we are righteous before God. And through Jesus Christ, we are empowered to live righteously. And the disciples say, is it worth it? No one else could free me from the debt of sin that I owed. And no one else can empower me to live a life of righteousness. Not the laws of man. Even God's law serves to condemn me. But Jesus Christ comes and he gives me life. When you think about what Jesus Christ did, there's this, uh, there's this doctor, Dr. Samuel Weinstein. He's from New York. This is a picture of him. Um, he spends his time when he's not working. He'll go and he'll do medical uh, procedures in other countries. In 2006, he went down to El Salvador. He's a heart surgeon. And he was working on an eight-year-old boy who's performing heart surgery on. The boy didn't have the surgery. He was going to die. But as they were doing the surgery, they were 12 hours in. The boy had lost so much blood that it actually didn't matter what they were going to do in the surgery. He didn't have enough blood. He was going to die. And the problem with the boy was that they ran out of blood because he was B negative. Only 2% of the population have a B negative as far as blood is concerned. And so they realized the surgery doesn't matter. Somebody has to come. Somebody's got to intercede. We've run out of blood. There was one person in the room, though, that had B negative. It was the man performing the surgery. So he actually paused the surgery, gave it over to others. Remember, he's 12 hours in at this point. He cleans himself up. They draw a pint of blood from him. They give it to the boy. He drinks some orange juice and a Pop-Tart. They give the boy the blood. He's able to finish the surgery, and he saves the boy's life. And, you know, you hear a story like that, and it's like, look at what this man did for this person. Like, that's a temporary fix, though. That the boy's got new life, at least. He goes from being an eight-year-old, and he can go on living. But, but the guys here, the disciples, the apostles are saying, don't you understand? Through Jesus Christ, I have, you have the forgiveness of sins. I have a new life. My debt has been paid. Someone stronger than me came and lived and died in my place. And because he did, today I am I'm alive, and I'm not going to give that up, and I'm not going to not tell people about it because it's what they need as well. Is this all worth it to follow Jesus? Like as a church and as a family to encourage one another, like is following Jesus worth it? Peter would say it this way, where else can we turn? You alone have the words of what? Eternal life. Do you believe that though? When you think about Jesus, is he Lord? Is he Savior? Do you celebrate every day the vast treasure that you have in him? And just to end this with a shot in the arm of confidence for you and me, like, is this all worth it? I have to ask the question when I read something like this, which is, like, how can we believe this to be true? Like, why should we actually believe anything that the disciples have to say here? 
Well, they actually give us the answer. They say, when we call him Savior and Lord, we call him Savior and Ruler. The reason why we believe that to be true is for this one very profound reason. Are you ready for it? It's this. God validated Jesus Christ as Ruler and Savior through his resurrection. Like none of what we're doing matters, none of what the, the apostles say matters. Listen, they were willing to die because they believed Jesus to be their ruler and savior. But how did they know that he was their ruler and savior? It's because they had seen Christ resurrected from the dead. Do you see what it says there in the text? I love how in verse 30 it says, listen, you guys killed him and hung him on a tree, but God raised him. You guys killed him and hung him on a tree, but God exalted him. Time and time again, the church of God, the first believers of God, they come back to this one central truth. Paul even said it to the church in Corinth. He says, listen, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, we're all hosed. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Him being ruler and savior, none of it, it can't be true. But instead, because of the resurrection, we know it to be true. And I want to just share this. Do you know, when Peter and the apostles made this claim, the men that they were standing before, the men that they were standing before, they said, listen, Christ is raised from the dead. You know what gave them such boldness to believe in Jesus in the face of these men? Is because Matthew tells us in his gospel that it was these very men whom the guards from the empty tomb came to and said on that resurrection Sunday, the tomb's empty, what are we gonna do? And this very men said, go out, Tell the people that his disciples came in the night and stole his body. And we'll report that to the governor. And if the governor tries to get you in trouble, we'll cover for you. And then it says they paid them off. You see, Peter and the apostles stood before the men that they knew, that these men knew the tomb was empty. <laughs> they had boldness and they had confidence because they're like, go ahead, prove it. Prove us wrong. You can't find the body. You know the tomb was empty. You paid off the guards and you're circulating that message. We can with boldness say that he rose from the dead and we believe him to be who he is because we saw it. We saw it with our own eyes. In fact, they get so infuriated, the text goes on to say about this, like the world doesn't like the idea of Jesus as Savior and Lord. Can I give an amen to that? I mean, because that's what, they get so upset, they want to put him to death. And then one of the leaders there, Gamaliel, it comes and he says this, he looks at them and he's like, okay, listen, guys, before you put them to death, let's recognize something. There have been other people who claim to be Messiah. They lived, they died, and their followers scattered. This has happened over and over again, Gamaliel says. And what Gamaliel says to them to hold them back is he says, listen, if this is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. But if this is of the Lord, or if this is not of the Lord, then they're going to pass away. Gamaliel comes to them and says, don't just kill them because... If he didn't really rise, if, then they're going to scatter like the wind. But if it's of God, you're not going to be able to, to change them. Church, if Gamaliel were brought to day to day, and we said, look at Gamaliel, you prophesied, you said, if, if what they're saying is true, then, then we should see the spread of this thing throughout the world. What would he see? He would see the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ being real because there are churches like ours hundreds and thousands and millions all around the world proclaiming Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. <laughs> Church, is it worth it? When we talk about our mission to go and make disciples, when we talk about following Jesus, listen, he has made us new creations. My hope, my prayer for you and for me is that every single one of us 
would be able to take these words to heart and realize that no matter the cost, no matter what happens to us, we will keep on following Jesus because we know him for who he is. And do you know how the story in Acts 5 ends? It doesn't end with them being set out with a pat on the back. They are told once again to not proclaim Jesus, and it says that they are beaten with rods. They're beaten with rods, it says. And then it says in verse 41, it closes with this. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They didn't get killed, but on that moment they got beaten, yet they said it was still worth it. We're going to keep on following. And they rejoiced in their sufferings because they knew who they served. My prayer for us as a church as we come into a new season is that every person would know him truly as the leader and the savior. And as we do that, as we embrace who we are in him, the joy fills our hearts. We go forward with boldness and we count everything worth it for the sake of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we come before you, on a day like today, we celebrate who you are. We celebrate what you've done. We've done it just here locally as a church. Lord, we, we've seen baptisms happen, which is a testimony of your, your work in the lives of individuals. We shared the first fruits celebrating what you've done through the lives of this church family. Lord, we see you living and active, but my prayer for us, Lord, is not just that we'd celebrate who you are and what you've done, but we'd live as a people who believe it, who would take it in day by day, that there wouldn't be one person who, who claims Christ but does not claim him, though, as Savior and Lord. And that we would live in the righteousness that has been purchased for us through Jesus Christ's blood, and that we would live out the righteousness that you have given to us through the power that indwells us. Lord, help us to see who Christ is. Help us to live in those truths, to love people as Christ has loved us, to the praise and glory of his name. And all God's people said, amen and amen.